is a very important part of engaging and looking at this question and the issue of fear. what I would like to do is just for a moment open up. I'm not sure in which direction to go at this juncture. There are, there are a number of different possibilities and I feel like if there are any issues, any questions that have come up for anybody that you'd like to bring them forward just to help me get a sense of where we are and how to bring our day to its, to its most perfect conclusion. I'm not afraid of fear. I talk with fear sometimes. It's so painful. 
two weeks ago, uh, a few months ago, I decided to, to join to, uh, to Palau to learn the culture of the island. So I joined this Palau and I find out it was incredibly important. So three, three weeks ago, I was lingering through the day. I was feeling bad for something. And I said, oh, how am I going? But 6.45, I said, no, okay, you have to go. Get in my car. Was getting back. By the time I get into the car, I was back. Uh, I live in the point of street. I get into my street. I see a beam about half a block away. A tall figure, six feet tall, presumably. And in the beginning, the mind didn't compute, but I was wondering what this person was there. And when people walk at a time, all that something on my head. We got a little closer. I thought it was a human person. It did appear. We got a little closer. She was incredibly magnificent, exquisitely silhouette with a beautiful face. With a dog in front of this person. And uh, I said, you don't know belong. You belong to the Fifth Avenue and 42nd Avenue in New York. Incredibly. She got a little closer. She definitely was a female. Beautiful lady. Incredible person. So my mind said computer and said, should I open the right or should I just go by and I didn't know what to think. My body started getting my mind I think it was in a different I didn't know what to think. So my my headlights were shining. And by the time this person comes to my left side, which is the window, I opened the window and I said, Good evening. I my my headlight was shining in the in ahead. And this person was in my left side, and it looked like my headlights were shining right into this person. Which at the moment I thought it was the headlight shining into this person. She was wearing a black dress that a tunic like a monk, but hood up. I was able to see the face and the hands. The, the, the skin of the face was transparent, unique. I have never seen it. As the hands. And the, the, the lights of the eyes were so shining. Uh, and when I said good evening, perhaps I can get a feedback. I think that's what I'm coming to it. Uh, she gave me a sign like this. That was the only thing I was able to see. I, the mind was. Wondering what it means, so I proceeded to continue because I didn't want to disrespect the privacy. My body started getting sick to the skin as I left. However, there was a feeling of sacredness instead of fear. I drove for about five minutes and the sickness came continuing my hands in my body. Uh, anyway, I thought I'd like to share it because maybe that person will maybe this. Thank you. experience that sometimes things happen both within me and outside of me that are unfathomable, that there just are no answers and that there's no context with which to understand them. And from the perspective of the meditation practice, which is the way I feel I might be able to respond in a small measure to what you've shared, is that the most important thing with the unfathomable as it presents itself is to not in any way 
get attached to the experience because there is so much that happens along the way and that I certainly know and I'm sure all of us can know that and letting go in my experience has been the best way to ensure that I'm not going to interrupt the flow of whatever blessings are already on their way and so I offer you that which has been offered to me by my teachers that whatever happens nothing is worth indulging nothing is worth being attached and I don't for a moment suggest that that's what's happened for you but that feels like um, the feedback that feels most important that comes to mind for me it's all such a beautiful unfathomable mystery this life question is, um, is there anything about the death meditations that I can share that is brief? Um, there were a number of different ways that the Buddha worked with the fear of death. One of the things he did often with the nuns and monks and lay people was that he encouraged them to go into what are called the charnel grounds in India. Those of you who've been to Asia will undoubtedly have seen these charnel grounds and these are places where where the bodies of people who have died um, are taken often they're dipped in the river in the Ganges River and then taken and put on a funeral pyre and if the families have the resources then there's there's a fire that's made and the body is burnt but sometimes they come from such poor families that that's not even possible and then the bodies are just left there and the birds of prey come, you know, do their, their work, or if, if the families can afford it, the bodies are burnt. And all of this is done completely out in the open. And so unlike here, where we are all so protected from the, the ever-present reality of death, you know, we dispatch people, of course, as we know, to hospitals and nursing homes just to get them out of the way as much as possible. And so in life, then are not many opportunities unless we create them of coming face to face with death and so what the Buddha did was he sent the nuns and monks into the charnel grounds to meditate on the decomposing bodies as one of the practices not to create a ghoulish terrifying thing but for the women and men to know beyond a shadow of doubt that we definitely are going to die that there is no way around it you know we all know that intellectually but we don't know that with every cell of our body and the miracle that happens when we do know that and when it's irrefutable is that there is both such urgency and such passion for life and the preciousness of life becomes such a deeper ever-present context with which life is lived and so that was one of the ways he worked with it one of the other ways which I did for many months was a meditation on the 32 parts of the body and what we did was we focused on different parts of the body there were a bunch of nuns and a couple of us monks and we all lived in the forest in tents and day and night we focused on a different part of the body we started with the hair of the head and then the hair of the body nails teeth skin and slowly we, we went through the organs of the body fluids of the joints, the different fluids, the excretions of the body, right through. And the mind became very, very concentrated. So that was another kind of practice that the Buddha taught, you know, focusing on the different parts of the body. And what began to happen after a while, it was remarkable that the whole sense of solidity of self began to dissolve. Gavin, this composite, stable, fixed person, began to get very shaky it was almost like a sort of a hologram 
And I began to experience this body as nothing more than changing elements. And then, as you were saying earlier on about the inicha, the change, all of a sudden the body just began dissolving. And it was just as it truly is. I mean, you know, we all know from our readings what the scientists tell us that our bodies completely renew themselves in seven years. In seven years, every cell in our body is a new one. All the old ones are gone. So we are in constant flux. And when the mind is that clear and that present and that concentrated, there is a physical cellular experience of that happening. And so it was, it was riveting, you know, from that perspective, you know, the notion of Gavin, me, being this body, really became extremely sh shaky. And, you know, I don't know, in the long run, I mean, I'm still as dizzy as I ever was, but I feel like my relationship with the body did change quite, quite um, fundamentally during that process. We also did this extraordinary thing where we were taken to the Department of Anatomy of a nearby university, and we, we did loving-kindness, which we'll be doing in a while, uh, in this great big room, and then the head nun invited me to open this envelope beside me, and in this envelope was the body of a woman. It was the first dead body I'd ever seen. I was like 32 years old, you know? And it was remarkable, coming from the perspective of all this practice, sitting next to this dead body. And, you know, this woman didn't appear to have died in a lot of pain. And, you know, she had an earring on her ear and her toenails were painted. And, um, you know, and, you know, it was, it was a sort of an incredible excursion for a whole lot of highly concentrated nuns and monks who'd been living in the woods for, for months and years, you know. But then the nun said to me, walk around to the other side of the table, which I did, and this body had been completely sliced in half, you know, and it was amazing. It was like in an instant, my mind went through like a real shift that was irrevocable. It was like in that instant, I could no longer relate to this body as I'd done before. You know, this <coughs> surface that I'd always considered to be me in some sort of way is like paper thin. And underneath me was this miracle of physiological complexity. It was just amazing. And we, we meditated. We were with it. It was the most sacred hours of my life, being there, being with this body, just seeing you know, the liver and the organs and everything right before me. Uh, you know, and you moved a tendon and the toe moved. You know, it was just amazing. And, you know, for some people, and this is not a story that, that I would tell outside of a context like this, for some people, you know, they would think it the most macabre uh, endeavor that any human being can do. But for me, it felt like probably the most responsible thing I'd ever done. It was like, it was an irrevocable lurch towards what is true in that experience. And I feel that that's what the Buddha was trying to do. He was trying to take us by the scruff of the neck and say, life is precious. Don't waste any opportunity. See the body for what it is and know that who you are is far greater than the limitation of the body. And these were all practices that he did to, you know, to help people um, come to, to some balance and acceptance with uh, the fact of our mortality. And there, you know, there are specific reflections, almost like um, mantras, which, which I've taught some retreats, and maybe we'll do one. Well, what do you think, Paul? Should we do one later this year? Yeah, Paul's like my partner in crime. <laughs> Where, and, you know, I did one in Massachusetts at a Buddhist study center a couple of years ago. And, you know, my friend said, oh my God, that's going to be the most depressing day, you know. But there were a lot of people there, and it was one of the, it was one of the most joyful experiences of my life. It was like there was something very deeply joyful about coming closer to what is true, about stepping out of the dream, and doing it together, hand in hand with other people, coming face to face with what's true. It was like a celebration. 
you know, they said that there'd never been so much noise on the retreat there before. And it wasn't weeping and wailing, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. So, yeah, maybe we'll do one of those. We were also thinking uh, the next one uh, is tentatively scheduled for April and um, titled The Fire of Wrath, Working with Anger in the meditation practice. So maybe that'll be next. Is that enough? Do you want to know more? Oh, that was fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I like you said stepping out of the dream. Yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I did after I was diagnosed was, you know, and Remember that it was like I lost a whole generation of friends. I mean, Adelaide, my mom, is here with us. You know, she, she, she said to me at a time, she said, you are losing more friends than I am, you know, and I'm 30 years older than you are. It was like so many of my friends are gone, you know. They're all memories. And so when I was diagnosed, it was like I took my place in that community to some extent. And what I did was I prepared to die. I prepared to die in every way I could. And one of the ways I prepared was to, you know, do my will and my living will and talk with people about what I wanted with my body and everything. And people will, you know, I had my 40th birthday the year after I was diagnosed and it was like the hugest birthday. Everybody that we invited came. So they were like 50 or 60 people. And I know they were there. It was like just to, to, to say goodbye to Gavin, you know. So it was a celebration, but it was also like a current of poignancy. And it was fine, you know, but it was what it was. But this process, you know, and here I am 10 years later, you know. But this process of getting ready to die and taking care of my will, speaking to my family, speaking to my mom, speaking to my brother, taking care, it was such an exercise of joy. I felt so happy and relieved after having it done. It was like you can live when you truly prepare to die. And so I'd done it to whatever degree in the meditation practice and also in a very practical way, you know. And yet, you know, I'm quite sure if we checked around this room, which I do quite often with my friends, and ask them if they have wills, and very few people have wills, you know. And that's just part and parcel of the same thing. Preparing to die with this incredible amount of love. I mean, Carlos Castanedas, in you know his books with uh, Don Juan, you know, Don Juan was like tormented him with fear. He said, you know, death is on your left shoulder, and if you if you think that something is important, anything, any drama, he said, just ask death how important this is, and death will give you a very clear answer, you know. And so, you know, I, I really look forward to doing that, you know, to, you know, to doing a day focused on, on that. Yeah. <clears throat> Something that's interested me for a long time is this, and I can't remember who said it or exactly how it was said, but I'm sure there's many Canadians. Those who uh, die while they're living will not die when they die, but will know eternal life. And um, so I've kind of grappled with that and tried to understand what might be behind that. And one of the things that um, that's come to me um, through a lot of reading and experiencing is this notion about dying to each moment and um, that this is perhaps how we prepare to die so that as we and I guess what dying to each moment means is letting go continually um, and then I didn't know how to do that either and then I started um, exploring breath and how much the exhalation is the letting go, and that ultimately we're, I suppose, all going to have one final exhalation, and that exploring the breath in that way, I keep you very much in touch with the possibility that these things may be the end. Wow. I mean, you know, I was reading, I think it, 
it was in a Sufi reading, I was reading recently, where they said, we human beings are like incredibly arrogant and ridiculous and neurotic. You know, we, we actually live our lives expecting an in-breath is going to follow every out-breath. You know, I mean, how ridiculous they say that we can live on that assumption, you know, but we all do. I mean, have you, how has it been r relating to the out-breath as the final exhalation? Oh, I never really questioned it. Yeah, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but in-breath always comes. <laughs> Plus, I forget to breathe a lot, right. I forget to pay attention a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it is a very interesting exercise. I mean, it's, you know, it's like those instructions where I say, allow the body to breathe itself. You know, it's just, you know, that's a very profound instruction, not personally profound, but a profound injunction to allow the body to breathe itself. Because when the body is truly breathing itself, then we've relinquished all control. And, you know, we're all in the game of control. You know, we all want to, to believe that we're something, and usually it's the body. And so, you know, to some extent, we all have some sort of collusion with the breath. And the whole part of meditation on one level is about, is about allowing the body to breathe itself and to just... All there is is a knowing. Mm. And everything else falls away. Exactly. I actually had an interesting experience in this room once, in watching in this room, um, when I got into really feeling my heel just beginning to make contact with the carpet and continue to experience my foot just going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the carpet and sort of like stretching out the moment and then beginning to contemplate around that. When does one moment begin, or when does one moment end and the next moment begin? And that's kind of tied in with this whole thing about the breath as well, because at some point, it, it, you realize that it's one continuous moment, and that we have an opportunity to kind of jump in as many times as we can remember to. And I guess that's I'm trying to understand. Yeah, that. and then to and let that go of the eternal quality, the timelessness, the fact that it is eternal, and I guess that's what continues after the breath. But it's just big for me to <laughs> understand. It's beyond our it's understanding. Beyond understanding. When we know, we know. Mm -hmm. You know, and that experience. You know, my response is the same as to the gentleman at the back. Mm -hmm. You know, that experience of doing the meditation here with the heel. You have to let go of it. It's gone. History. Corpse. Dead. You know? <laughs> you know, and the extent to which we are holding on to it in any way is the extent to which we suffer. It's so simple and so challenging. Because you know, your question today, why there is fear, you know, why is there fear? The Buddha as part of his enlightenment saw that one of the impulses of mind is when there is something pleasant, it's the impulse to hold on to it. You know, it's like we want more. When there's something unpleasant, we push away. And when it's sort of neutral and bland, we just space out. And all of those factors of mind, of grabbing, pushing away, you know, of just spacing out, are what keeps the cycle of birth and death going. And the it's called the wheel of life, the wheel of samsara. Greed, hatred, and delusion keep the wheel turning. And so the extent to which we understand the working of greed, hatred, and delusion is the degree to which we're freed. And the reason why there's fear is because something has arisen that we don't like. And we get fearful, which is a pushing away, you know? And that's why there's fear. That's why there's fear. You know, there's a noise that is sharp and surprising, and we don't like it. We, we get shocked, and there's fear. And so the possibility of having a mind that is in complete equipoise, very balanced, equanimous,
finalists with whatever happened, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, we're there. We're not blown around like a leaf in the wind. We're not a victim of circumstance. We're fully present, awake, grounded, rooted, alive, moment to moment, is the most incredible possibility. To me, that is what it means to be a real human being, is to be fully awake, alive, in every way, open and sensitive in the world, you know? And fear is one of the ways in which we remove ourselves and react to life. One of the spokes of the wheel of samsara. That's like the capsule answer to your question. It's a real big question. I would very much like to end the day with a, a loving-kindness meditation. And we don't have to begin it quite yet. I'm also committed to be punctual about 5 o'clock. I would like to invite anybody who perhaps hasn't spoken or anybody that has something pressing, particularly any questions that there might still be about the practice, about what we've discussed, so that as much as possible um, there can be a sense of completion here. Um, I was wondering, um, just in your own life, when you leave something like this experience today, do you have angst um, about, I could have said this, I didn't mention that, and do you review what you said to a person and how you could have said it better, or do you find yourself being able to just let it go, that whatever said was said was, was, um, was enough in that moment. And I, I just find myself sometimes I just get into knots with feeling like I could have said it better, I could have been more responsive, I do think a conversation, and, um, and it seems that that creates so much pain. And I was mm. just wondering if you go through that, when, like you're, you're joking about how many of your note cards you haven't done yet. You know, what I do is I go home and I read the note cards and I think, oh, I could have said this and I left it out and I could have included that quote. And oh my God. And <laughs> 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 you just let it all blow to the wind. And just, see, just these moments where not. Oh, I just let it all. <laughs> <laughs> In the beginning, it was hell on earth. In the beginning years of teaching, it was so hard. I would crucify myself after a talk. And people would come to me and say, oh, it was really great. I learned a lot. I wouldn't believe them, you know? <laughs> and I spoke to my teacher, Joseph, about it. I said, it's terrible. I said, you know, I want to do this more than anything. There's nothing that I felt has had anything like the meaning of doing this and it's like purgatory afterwards and I said I'm doing it to myself and he said well everybody does that at the beginning because these teachings are so pure and they're so powerful that in the transmission of them it can be quite disturbing to one's you know to all the different unhealed facets of oneself it's changed a lot over the last years. And a lot of it has to do with, oh, I am just so grateful to be alive. I am so grateful. I'm so grateful to be on this island and to be doing what I'm doing. I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world. And I guess one of the, one of the blessings of gratitude is that I've become a lot more forgiving of myself. And so I know that I've put everything that I could 
into preparing for today. And I know that if any of this, and boy this is interesting, this is like the best that we didn't get. <laughs> so you'll just have to come back to the next one. Paul, get out those registration slopes. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I, I just know that um, more than ever, I mean, I do, I do some replaying, but it's with, it's with a lot of tenderness. And I think it has, you know, something to do with what I spoke about right at the beginning, that, that this practice for me is one about being so passionately in the moment and really sort of unmotivated celebration of each moment of life, precious and beautiful as it is, that I trust that if this is meant to be out there, it will happen. And my life is so much easier because of that. And so, you know, Faith, when you asked your question about the death and awareness, I mean, I'm really grateful that you asked it because you know, sometimes people head for the doors, you know, death awareness, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's so amazing, the thing that most of us are most terrified about, what I was most terrified of, was, was in truth the key to the deepest happiness and the greatest experience of contentment that I've ever known. And boy, I would love to share that with all my heart, you know. Because others shared it with me and cheered me on and helped me. Two huge egos, I have this terror, this one huge terror. I think I've really come to terms with that I'm going to die and that I could die tomorrow and all of that. I really feel that. But when I think about my daughter, should anything happen to my daughter, I couldn't live with that. Um, and I, I'm unable to do anything with those feelings in my practice. And, and they astound me. And they come to me frequently. I see images of her in the street being hit by a truck. Well, you know, I think it's, it's, you know, it's the old baby steps, you know, I mean, we can't deal with the whole catastrophe this afternoon before five o'clock, and I'm not being in any way snide or, or flip about it. You know, we just have to take baby steps, so every moment that you return in the meditation, that willingness to come back again and again to a bubble of fear is preparing you for the time because we all know that as insofar as those we love you know like my mother either she's going to go first or i'm going to go first or by some miraculous stroke of fortune we perhaps go together but you know you know she lived in south africa i live here so there's not a lot of chance of that either you know and if we try and bite off more than we can chew, we immobilize ourselves. But it's, it's that old story we were talking about earlier. What I do in this moment, I believe, is going to help us in that moment when we face the big ones. When I was diagnosed, when my father died in my arms, and we all have these moments. It's like we find that we're actually ready, although we would never have thought so. What we're doing here today together, holding each other, holding hands, hearts, joined, looking at what is true, is preparing us, whether we believe it or not, for those junctures when we die, when those we love die, or any other catastrophe that comes our way. It's incredible. It's so beautiful. I'm going to move on. It's hard for me to do that <laughs> because I just want to be sure that there, there's anybody that hasn't spoken and that would like to, that you have the opportunity to do so in the next few minutes.
I would like to return, if I may, just for a moment to the to my experience as a monk at this monastery. It was such a privilege to live the way the Buddha lived and the way the nuns and the monks lived at that time and have lived in the 2,500 years since. And one of the things that I really came to deeply experience was the Buddha's injunction to live as interdependent and interconnected a life as possible. For a Westerner having been brought up in a very affluent society, it was really interesting to have no possessions whatsoever. All I had was my bowl and the robes that I wore. I actually had given everything I owned to my brother who'd emigrated to Canada, and I had nothing. And I went into the monastery, and there we weren't allowed to ask for anything. If we wanted toilet paper, if we needed toothpaste, they were either given to us or we had to do without them. We weren't, as nuns and months, allowed to ask for anything. So when we went on our begging rounds every day for food, we, what we received was what we ate. And some days it was rice and dried fish, and some days it was a lot more. But it was an enormous teaching of this interdependence. And so on some days when people brought wonderful food, and I know I've spoken in other retreats about some of those experiences, it was just so touching. And the only thing that I realized I could do as a monk, given the 227 precepts under which I lived, was to offer my practice in return. And so I practiced with all my heart. And those were the time. That was the time, I feel, where I really sunk into, um, into levels of faith and trust and, um, and gratitude for these teachings. Because all I could offer the people who came to the monastery to feed me was the sincerity of my practice. We were keeping the teachings alive. And it was like that in the time of the Buddha. And it's, it's, it's like that uh, today. When I sat my first long retreat in Massachusetts at the Insight Meditation Society, I was so grateful that they made it possible for me to sit there on a scholarship, because I didn't have any money at that time. That was one of the reasons why, when Paul and I uh, were discussing these retreats, that I really, I, I really asked that we have a scholarship fund so that, so that people who are unable to afford to be here can come. These teachings have forever been, from the very beginning, been considered priceless and have never ever um, been charged for. And then after several years of intensive silent practice in Massachusetts and also in England, I then had the privilege to serve on staff at the Insight Meditation Society and got to meet many of the teachers who, who I'd studied and practiced with over the years. And what I came to see with these women and men who have given their whole lives to teaching is that they are as complicated and as puzzled and as complex as I am around the, the issue of money, the issue of support, the issue of really wanting to offer these teachings freely and at the same time facing the fact that they, like everybody else, have uh, everyday expenses and 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 you know financial commitments and this issue of dana of generosity which the buddha taught and that could be the subject of a whole retreat all the different ways that generosity is practiced and manifested pushes a lot of buttons pushed a lot of buttons for me at the beginning at teacher meetings, which we have periodically, and there's a big one this year that I hope to go to in California, we're meeting Western meditation teachers, a meeting with the Dalai Lama. One of the topics that enduringly comes up for us is how can we, as teachers of this beautiful Dharma in the West, offer them freely, which we're all totally committed to, and at the same time honor and respect the fact that um, it's really difficult to make ends meet out here in the world. And 
I got a real sense of that, living at IMS and meeting these women and men who were teaching so wholeheartedly and with such passion and really struggling. Some teachers are blessed with financial independence, which is a wonderful thing, and usually these people are very generous with the, the rest of us. I am supported by the communities where I've taught before and continue to be in, in Vermont and in, in Massachusetts. That any of us can make of hearts and minds is a gift of who we are to one another and to the world. Our gift of fearlessness to one another for me is a priceless, a priceless gift. And I, I offer these teachings today um, in the hope that uh, they've been an inspiration for practice. And um, if they have been and if they are an inspiration, that will be the greatest gift, shortly speaking, personally. But it is traditional and on a practical level in the West for women and men in my position to extend an invitation to those who hear and benefit from the teachings to extend whatever gratitude, appreciation, or support is possible in offerings of what are called dana or generosity to those who share the teaching. Our livelihood very gratefully depends on the generous kindness of those we serve. And there is no expectation of anything. Let me be absolutely clear about that. But it would be remiss for me not to very clearly and very frankly extend the invitation and to just share with you my own vulnerability, my own discomfort, my own fears around addressing this issue. But it is a very important issue because I know how much I've been blessed by these teachings, and I certainly don't want my own fears uh, to get um, in the way of me just um, giving voice to what is true in terms of uh, support. So just like the nuns and monks of long ago, um, I extend the same invitation to you. Yeah. Um, when I first started this practice, I I didn't realize that the registration fees that we pay have are not a part of Donald. That, that everything we pay comes as it will go towards the facility and the registration, um, the mailing, all that. So uh, I don't know if people are clear on that. That that that. that um, Sometimes people come thinking that they've given something that goes to you, that everything they take, none of that goes to you, right? I mean, they, the Madonna is what goes to the teacher. And I, I don't think yeah. people always grasp that. But if we don't offer the Madonna, the teacher doesn't receive any Yeah, you know, I mean, if you know, if you go to a retreat, say the Inside Meditation Center, and you pay whatever you pay, not a penny. Oops. Oh, not a not a penny of that goes to the teacher. And you know, as you said, the thirty-five dollars—that's what it is, isn't it, Paul? For today is to cover the uh, a cost for everybody who's here. We have to pay a certain amount of money to to Wood Valley, and then the administration uh, cost of putting this together. And you know, it's a delight and a privilege to be able to offer it this way. But I feel as part of my respect for you, it's just very important to be very upfront. And thank you, Rosen, for helping me clarify that in terms of my position here. And I'm really sweating a lot right now. <laughs> <laughs> It's spelled D-A-N-A. -A. And 
Oh, right. <laughs> Thank you. Do you see, I'm, 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 I'm dizzy to the last breath. Yes, there is a basket outside. Thank you. Basket's a little hard to find. <laughs> it's under the bell. It's kind of obscure. Yeah, it's under the bell. Well, um, if we need, perhaps if it needs to occupy a more prominent <laughs> place in our geography, somebody other than myself <laughs> will move it. Maybe <laughs> you know, um, for you know, a lot of r retreats, the teacher doesn't do the dhanatap. Usually, the teacher's outside in the other room, and somebody gives the talk. And once the money stuff is out of the way, then the teacher comes in and gets on with there. And that is as it is. But I really feel that as uncomfortable as it is, and as sweaty as I am right now, that there's probably something very good for me coming forward in a way that I've done. So if I've been less than eloquent and if my choice of words has not been skillful, please forgive me. How long were you at the I was there, that period was about altogether 18 months. And uh, was there any particular difficulty that you encountered in terms of I felt nothing but the total and complete support of everybody around me to do what I was doing. And if there's a willingness and a commitment to do it, I can assure you that wherever you go, constellating around you will be every support that you need. It is considered particularly in Asia, but here too at the West, you know, at the monasteries in the West, it's considered the highest gesture of self-responsibility to set aside a period of your life to go into that kind of depth of practice. And I'm not necessarily even talking necessarily Buddhist, you know, just stepping out of the world for a period of time and gifting oneself with a perspective of living that simply, particularly for we in the West, is amazing. And my experience was that the people, the, the Burmese people who came to the monastery were just more generous with us than they were with the Burmese monks, you know, because they respected it. And they know that in many cases, we in the West are keeping the essence of the Dharma in alive in a way that isn't always the case in Asia. You know, it's almost like you've taken the distillation of the practice and they're just, you know, keeping that fire very bright, un unaffected by a lot of the religiosity of the countries in which the Dharma was first established. If ever you want to know of the possibilities for the monastic possibilities, I invite you to contact me. Oh dear. Okay. I'm here for the Donna talk, but when my mother starts, I leave. Bye. <laughs> It wasn't easy when he went into the monastery. Garrison did a chocolate fountain and he walked around with a begging bell. <laughs> My husband, of course, it was far worse for him. He he didn't like it at all and I can't say I was very happy about it. That was a long time ago. Um, I've learned a lot from Gavin since then. I always say I've grown up since he became a brother. I've learned a lot from him. Thank you. And 
I'm very proud of you for having gone into a monastery and having given everything away. I don't think I'd ever have had that sort of courage. So, thank you. of loving-kindness. <coughs> I invite you to once again take a position that's comfortable for those of you that are not familiar with this practice, it is so simple. I will offer phrases which I invite you to allow to echo within yourself silently and just be with the feelings, be with what is evoked. In this initial period, once again returning to the breath, to, to the experience of breathing, holding a sense of one another here, a sense of the community, the hearts, the minds, the great hearts, all of us gathered here today together in silence, never alone. Breathing together, talking, listening, walking together. What a blessing, what a great blessing on this beautiful beloved island. I invite you to experience for a moment the blessing of your body being here in the body together, grounded. to the heart center now, that place in the center of the chest. You may, if you want, even touch that place for a moment. Just feel the tenderness, the greatness, the blessing of an open heart. And then allowing these words to echo within. May I be happy just the way I am. May I be peaceful with what's happening in my life, within me and outside of me. May I love myself completely. Keep breathing. The Buddha said if we looked all over the world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and our kindness and our compassion and ourselves. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. <coughs> May I be filled with love and kindness and compassion. May I be free of fear. May I move beyond the grip of fear. And may I be free from suffering. Keep breathing. Extending loving kindness, holding ourselves within our great hearts of love and forgiveness. And now widening the heartedness to include all of us here in the room our brothers, our sisters, our beloved ones. 
May we all be happy just the way we are. May we be peaceful with what's happening. Wishing one another well. May we all be free of fear. May we love ourselves completely. Keep breathing. opening the circle of love and kindness a little further to include those in your life who you love, who are not here, those other parts of the island, other parts of the world, including our brothers and sisters who live here at Wood Valley and who've helped make this retreat possible, including all who make this retreat possible, <coughs> including all who walk and fly and swim around this beautiful island, all creatures everywhere. May we all on this beloved island be happy and peaceful. May we all be filled with love and kindness and compassion those who swim, those who fly, those who walk the earth. May we all be free of fear and the causes of fear. May we all love without condition and without limit. Keep breathing. the heart even further to include the people of all these islands and the creatures and then all around the world all people, women, men, children everywhere holding all in our great hearts of love and kindness and compassion those who are starving and those in prison, the children, the old, the dying, and those that are just being born, all the creatures of the waters, the sky, the land. the trees and the flowers, the ground, the air. May all beings everywhere, without limit, be happy. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be filled with love and kindness and compassion. And may all beings everywhere be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Keep breathing. I invite you to be aware of any feelings or the lack of feeling that there might be in your heart or mind. Just resting for a moment or two in the loving kindness of one another. And coming back to our island, to one another, to ourselves. Again, may I be happy just the way I am. The 
remembering that the Buddha said if we looked all over this beautiful world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and kindness and our compassion, our forgiveness than ourselves. May I be happy just the way I am. May I be peaceful with what's occurring in my life. May I love myself completely. May I love myself completely. May I be happy just the way I am. May I be peaceful with what's happening within me and outside of me. May I love myself completely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.